0: Hello and welcome, fellow music lover. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Travels in Music, the podcast that shares stories about music from all over the world and explores a musical planet. Thanks for joining me today. What do you think of when you hear the word Afghanistan? If you're anything like me, and I would argue most Westerners, the word immediately calls to mind images of war, terrorism, poverty, religious extremism. You probably don't immediately think of a vibrant and important world music tradition and a warm and welcoming people. But if travel has taught me anything, it is to look beyond our TV news-enforced, myopic view of the world, get beyond the headlines, and find out what's underneath. And unsurprisingly, what we usually find on the ground in countries like Afghanistan is very, very different from what we find on the nightly news. Today's episode of Travels in Music is about looking beyond the headlines and exploring the music and culture of Afghanistan with an ideal tour guide. Professor John Bailey is an ethnomusicologist, musician, and award-winning filmmaker. He's also one of the world's leading experts on the regional music of Afghanistan. Professor Bailey's research and perspective is informed by over 50 years of travel to Afghanistan. He first visited the country back in 1965. In today's episode of Travels in Music, Professor Bailey shares stories about what it was like traveling through Asia in the 1960s, and living in Afghanistan, and encountering the tourists lining the hippie trail in the 1970s. He also helped me to understand what he finds so compelling about Afghanistan, its people, and its music. And I wanted to know, what is it like studying a music culture devastated by war and extremism? What is the state of traditional music in Afghanistan today, 15 years since the U.S. invasion? Are things getting better for musicians in a country under the constant threat of the Taliban, an organization that forbids most types of music? And in a country with an unimaginably tragic recent history, is there reason for hope in Afghanistan? I learned a lot speaking with my guests today, and I think you'll also enjoy listening to my conversation with Professor John Bailey. The first question I would like to to ask you is I'd I'd like to know more about your original motivation and inspiration for studying the music of Afghanistan. So back in the 1970s, being a student in the UK, what, what originally drew you to, to the music of Afghanistan?
1: Well, uh, Zachary, I had actually been in Afghanistan in 1965 when I just left university and uh, with a friend made a world tour to Australia and then all around the the Central um, America and the States. And I've, I've obviously driving through many, many different countries, Afghanistan was one that really stuck in my memory as extremely interesting, both in terms of the uh, the scenery, the material culture, but also the people. I did hear a bit of Afghan music at that time in 1965. When I came back to the UK, then I was a, a graduate student In experimental psychology, I have a PhD in experimental psychology for work on uh, human movement and spatial orientation. But in the middle of my studies in 1968, I think it was, I found a very interesting book in the library called Theory and Method in Ethnomusicology written by the distinguished uh, professor Bruno Nettle. I'd never heard of ethnomusicology up to that moment. And I thought, wow, this looks much more interesting than experimental psychology. So bit by bit, having completed my doctorate, uh, I managed to, it's a long story, I won't go into it now, I'll give you details later, but I managed to turn myself into an ethnomusicologist and since I was very interested in long-necked lutes in particular, um, and I knew that there's some interesting developments in long-necked lutes in Afghanistan had recently taken place, I naturally gravitated towards there with a A research grant from our Social Science Research Council through the Queen's University of Belfast, Department of Social Anthropology. So I did come into the whole thing very much from an academic point of view.
0: That seems like a bit of a leap from a PhD in in psychology to um, ethnomusicology. Mm. But for people who might not know, what exactly is ethnomusicology?
1: Uh, well, it, it's a kind of complicated way of saying the, the study of world music, but very much informed by anthropology and the notion of carrying out field work and that famous uh, phrase of participant observation. In other words, you know, trying to become as far as possible uh, a member of the community and both participating in its life and but also uh, writing down about it, observing it. So it's a kind of split personality thing there. In terms of uh, my early motivation, you, know, you, you need to know that I was very, very interested in North American blues music as a teenager and played guitar and so on. And the, uh, the work of people like uh, Paul Oliver, prolific writer about blues, but also a um, uh, producer of some very interesting recordings of you know early 1920s, 1930s blues artists that, that really got me going. And as a student at university... I was very much involved in the British blues scene at that time that produced, you know, many famous groups, which I don't need to mention, probably. So uh, within Afghanistan, I found not something that, you know, sounded anything like blues, but I could see there was a a similar kind of musical culture in some ways. How do you mean? Uh, Well, this music, well... The music I encountered initially was very much, if you like, local folk music produced by people who, in many ways, were rather low down in the social order, just as, say, uh, early blues singers would have been. Uh, Many of them were itinerant or or whatever. Yeah, But um, Afghan music, I don't know if you've heard much of it, but it is very lively, it is very rhythmic music. It's it's not a difficult music for the uh, person brought up with a Western ear to get into.
0: A lot of it puts me in mind of North Indian classical music, which I'm far more familiar with. Oh, um, yeah. Did you, Were you a lover of Indian classical music back, I know back in the 1960s is when um, more and more young people, especially in the UK and the US, started to take an interest in Indian classical music. So did, did, were you part of that, that crowd at all?
1: Uh, uh, certainly I was, yes. I mean, I made another uh, overland trip, in 1970, also again on my way to Australia, uh, but this time I um, pitched up in Kathmandu in 1970, and I was there for about seven months. At that time, I was trying to play something vaguely resembling a sort of modal music on the on the acoustic guitar, and I started taking lessons first of all in tabla drumming in Kathmandu, and then later um, teamed up with a very fine sitar player called Narendra Bataju, who has been resident in Paris for the last 40 years or so. And uh, we, in fact, had a a little trio, um, sometimes known as uh, Bataju and Bailey's um, East-West Mix-Up. We played a number of gigs in Kathmandu and so on. And he taught me the, the rudiments of Indian music. So when I actually went to work in Afghanistan and discovered that there had been a strong imprint of music from India, as it then was, uh, I had a, a good you know, understanding of basic things like uh, rag and tar and so on. That was a big advantage for the work that I did later on. Not on the dutar, the long neck lute, but on the Afghan rabab, which is a, a, a small double-chambered lute that is the ancestor of the Indian sarod.
0: So back in the 1970s, I have to ask, um, are you familiar with the term hippie trail? Yes, yeah, so
1: I was there before the hippies got there. Right,
0: right. By the I time was... I
1: was working in Herat, in uh, you know, I was uh, I and my wife lived in the city of Herat, which was on the hippie trail for two years between 1973 and 77. So during that time, you know, we saw lots of these uh, hotels and restaurants uh, opening up for you know the tourists, as perhaps one might call them. And um, to a large extent, we, we, you know, we avoided those places. We weren't there in Afghanistan to um, be part of that scene. We wanted to, you know, as as far as we could get into the Afghan scene.
0: Right, right. And for anyone listening, the Hippie Trail was basically an overland route uh, from Europe all the way to Southeast Asia. I think it terminated, basically, um, of, yeah, a lot of hippie backpackers um, making their way overland. Um, Well, I saw
1: much more of that in Kathmandu than I did really in Afghanistan.
0: I would imagine, yeah. To this day, Kathmandu has a thriving sort of hippie backpacker scene. I was there a few years ago, and yeah, for sure.
1: Well, it also had the big attraction of Tibetan Buddhism. There were a lot of people there who were interested in in getting involved in that as well.
0: Right. In fact, I
1: I lived in a a community, well, for some months I was the guest of an American... um, school teacher in Kathmandu, a math teacher, and her husband. They had a nice big house out in the country. And then gradually uh, they split up and she had become an an Anila, a um, a Tibetan nun. And gradually the place sort of became more and more like a a monastery. In the end, I had to leave because they didn't appreciate my music making that much. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
0: Um, before we get a little deeper into the music, I have to ask just just in terms of the uh, the practicalities of traveling, especially traveling to to Asia, back in the sixties and seventies. I mean, I think it's difficult for people of my generation, people in their twenties and thirties, to really understand. You know, this predates the internet. That this predates all of that. So, well, well, just tell me what what was Afghanistan like in nineteen seventy three? Like, like, was it difficult to get there? Were there was there infrastructure? Like what 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 were your initial impressions of Afghanistan in that time?
1: Well, I mean, it, it, it's hard to differentiate them really from from my impressions of a whole lot of places. We were driving, my friend and I, and another person. We drove from Athens to Karachi. It was a kind of like an eight week trip in a very broken down old American car, and. Um, we really avoided hotels or restaurants or whatever. So we, we were, I mean, it's amazing to think of it today. It, it was another world. We, we, we would camp out under the stars every night. We didn't have tents or anything like that. I think it was late October, early November. It was quite cold some nights. And we did, you know, our own cooking and so on. So we were moving, you know, independently across these extraordinary countries going, you know, from uh, from uh, Turkey, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Iran, and Afghanistan. When we got to Afghanistan, we felt very comfortable because w- unlike some of these countries where when you went to shopping or whatever, I remember in Iran, if you wanted to stop in a, in a town to go and you know, get some food or whatever, immediately a huge crowd would gather around us, around the car and everything. And the first thing you would look for before stopping was a pair of policemen. Policemen always seemed to come in pairs, and you wanted one of them to guard the car while you went shopping, and the other to guard you while you did the shopping as well. As we got to Afghanistan, it was very different. People were not in any way so inquisitive, at least not displaying their inquisitiveness. And they were very hospitable. You know, there's always this thing about Afghans are so incredibly hospitable. They have this notion that, you know, a guest is a sort of gift, gift from God it's really important to entertain people and be hospitable. And, and you immediately pick that up in Afghanistan. And everybody has noticed that. There's the, the famous Lise Tusset, who is a Canadian uh, journalist now, very high up in the BBC, says, you know, when you go to Afghanistan, once you've been to Afghanistan, you always go back. There's something about that place that has a kind of magical quality to it. It's very hard to define. In terms of... Um, how we got on? Well, I, I mean, Afghanistan, in actual, in terms of uh, journeying and so on, was uh, was better than where we've been to because the Russians had just built a wonderful road from Herat down to Kandahar, and that road was almost completely empty. I discovered many years later that this road had been built with um, heavy transport of um, tank transporters in mind. So the the USSR at that time. We're definitely
0: thinking ahead. I've I've heard you describe those years that you lived in Herat in another in a video on YouTube, actually, as some of the best years of your life. Mm. And I'd like to know why. Like, what what made those years so special? And and what was your day to day life like? What exactly were you doing?
1: Well, of course, it varied a lot. You know, according to where we were in in our two year period of, of field work when we arrived. In the autumn of 1973, it was just the beginning of winter, there wasn't much musical activity going on, and I I immediately started my work with taking um, lessons from a very fine musician called Gadar Muhammad on the the dutar, the big 14 string dutar. The dutar means actually two strings, but one of the interesting things that had attracted my research was the way that that instrument between about 1950 and 1965 had had turned from a two-stringed instrument to a 14-stringed instrument. So most of those extra strings are sympathetic strings, like on the sitar. But that was a very, you know, interesting phenomenon. Who had done it? What difference had it made to the music played on the guitar? What different um, performance techniques with the hands were involved and so on? That's how my training in, in psychology sort of fitted into what I was doing in music. Then um, through the winter, then there wasn't that much musical activity, so I was able to concentrate on my lessons and learning. You know, familiarizing myself with the music, making recordings of my teacher, playing them endlessly, trying to play along with them. And then he would start to introduce me to other musicians and take me to, to visit people to record there. I and mean, he was a very, very helpful guy. And then in the springtime, You know, the uh, Afghans celebrate their New Year around uh, the 21st of March, the, um, whatever it is, the equinox. And um, that's called Nauru's New Year, and that is when musical activity really gets going. Everybody likes to be outside in the spring weather, and every week there will be these large country fairs with uh, tea booths, and many of them would have musicians playing in them. And uh, that began uh, became a very rich period of field work. And, you know, as we went on, we found ourselves getting more and more deeply involved with people now. I and mean, we had very little prob- problematical experiences in, in our life there. People were very, very helpful. And they, you know, how can I say, they took to us. In the early days, my wife Veronica and I worked together as a team. Uh, and she did a lot of the photography and so on, but when we went back um, two years later, having been in in the Queen's University, of Belfast for those two years and exposed them to a lot of um lectures and seminars in in anthropology, she had realised then that she could do um, very important work dealing with the music of of women women's domestic music, and from that point on, we didn't really work together. Nearly so much we covered as we sometimes put it, both sides of the curtain because the world of women's music making was more or less not not entirely but more or less closed to me so so we put the two things together
0: so so the the male musicians don't fraternize with with women musicians basically
1: uh, well it's complicated, but we're dealing with with a number of different kinds of musicians, so you you have got. Families of hereditary musicians, as you do in India, right. where the kids are brought up, you know, within the milieu where the music goes on all the time. They go, they go with their parents to gigs from an early age, and so on. And, and they're probably playing professionally by the age of uh, you know twelve, thirteen, fourteen. In one, there were two big families of professional hereditary professional musicians in Herat at that time, and in one of those families, both the women and the men were professional musicians, but they didn't play together in the same bands. So the, the women musicians played exclusively ready for women's wedding parties. My wife became so good as a singer of, uh, of local Herati songs that uh, her teacher used to take her out as a member of the band and never tell anybody, well, this is an English woman. If they thought she was a bit you know, different, they said, say, oh, well, she's our relative from, from Iran. Hmm. So she had an extraordinary experience in terms of day-to-day routine well we had you know a decent house the kind of house that uh, a sort of middle-class afghan family would have with a latrine lavatory uh, no no piped water very limited electricity supply just in the evenings um firewood was expensive so it was a bit cold in the winter time by the time we really got going and that was in the second year uh, we were very very busy. Every day there would be, you know, two or three different uh, appointments with people, you know, to record them or to interview them or to to visit them, whatever. And we attach great importance to writing all of this material up. That that was the the anthropological uh, experience. So we would spend. Um, when we went the second time, we drove, but we had a, a Land Rover, and we took a lot of stuff with us to uh, to have with us in Herat, including two old-fashioned typewriters and a very large amount of paper. So every morning we would be busy in our separate offices because the house was big enough because we were just a single pair and the whole family would normally live in a house like that. We had our separate spaces, and we would spend you know two or three hours every morning typing up the stuff that had gone on the day before because with that, you know, uh, enormous flow of information coming in all the time, if you don't get it down onto paper very quickly, you know, you just, you just forget it because there's another wave of stuff comes in the next day. So that was the kind of the routine. And just... We had a cook. <laughs>
0: oh, very good.
1: Well, the, cook, yeah, the cook's wife was very important because she, she was a very keen singer of this sort of women's domestic music, and my wife started singing really in the, the local stuff with, um, in the cook's home which was just next door with, with the cook's wife.
0: Our conversation continued as I asked Professor Bailey about his award-winning film Amir, an Afghan refugee musician's life in Pakistan. And and what what inspired that film? So this is in the 80s now. So this is after the Soviet invasion and yeah. Afghanistan is not a not a really a place I guess you can spend any time. So what what inspired you to make that film?
1: Well, uh, during my early field work in Herat my um, my mentor, Professor John Blacking, a very famous name in ethnomusicology, musicology, was very insistent that I should be using a movie camera to record the hand movements of musicians as I was studying all this stuff about performance technique. But um, in addition to that, I, I filmed a lot of other stuff, especially these, uh, the springtime country fairs and so on. And when I was back in Belfast, uh, having finished my field work, where are we now? About 1979, 1980, um, I, I started putting these films together. Uh, I made three films out of all of this footage. It's very, very crude. One is called the City of Herat. One is called the Annual Cycle of Music in Herat, and one is called the Shrines of Herat. Then, in 1984, the Royal Anthropological Institute advertised two positions as uh, anthropological film trainees at our very famous National Film Television School. And perhaps on the basis of this work that I had already done, I was one of two people fortunate enough to get one of these uh, scholarships, fellowships. So there I was suddenly, uh, not in the university anymore, but in our film school and being indoctrinated into a kind of uh, film style called observational cinema, which I absolutely loved uh, because it's it's like uh, a kind of fieldwork work Enterprise, but in the in the domain of film, rather than in the domain of what I've been doing mostly up to that time, doing recorded sound. So when it came, you know, we uh, we had to go make a proper um, feature-length film, one-hour documentary film, and I suddenly realised that you know there were all these refugees now in Pakistan, and surely amongst those refugees there must be musicians, and with the help of somebody from the BBC. Uh, we put together a project, so I went off to Peshawar for, um, I think I was there for three months altogether. The first few weeks, I was alone, just um, getting to know the members of this band. I was extremely fortunate, I have to mention this, that Amir, Amir John, in the title of the film, was somebody that I already knew from Herat. And in fact, his, 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 What's uh, the word I want? His, um, his aunt by marriage was my wife's singing teacher. So within a few days of arriving in Peshawar, I had met someone who you know I had very strong connections with, and who greeted me like you know a long lost brother. In fact, when we when we encountered, he immediately burst into tears. And often he would say to me, you know, when I look at you, I I, I see Herod. You know, I, I represented something for him that was very precious to do with his, his, his past. So that's how we, we made the film. He was playing Rabab, to my surprise. I didn't think of him as a Rabab player. I knew him as a singer and harmonium player. And he was now playing in the band of this Shah Wali Khan, who was a very successful refugee musician from southern Afghanistan, from the Jalalabad area. And a star of uh, radio and television in Peshawar, he was one of I think only four A-grade rated rated artists. So you know I fell on my feet there. i suddenly working with a, a very you know much admired band, a very a very good band. I hope you get to see the film sometime.
0: I would love to. Yes, I've been looking for it. Um, I haven't been able to. Uh acquired well, online me, and I, i'm in thailand so it's a little tough but yeah yeah I'd love well to let it. me
1: just tell you something zachary and i mean i published a book last year you may have heard of it it's called war exile and the music of afghanistan yes the ethnographer's tale yes and that has uh and i've got a dvd in the back uh with four of my films on it and amir is the first of those and that I'm just doing a bit of publicity here. That book is coming out in paperback edition in the uh, end of June, next June, this June.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, I look forward to reading it. Um, and you've 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 spent a lot of time. Um, I think probably by necessity um, studying musicians in, F- in in exile. Rather, is that primarily how the Afghan traditional music scene has survived? Is primarily in exile.
1: Well, I think it also survived by a lot of people, you know, hiding their instruments and, and, and engaging in their music, you know, in secret. Certainly that was going on. Right. Um, you have to realize, I mean, during the, during the, the Soviet era, the, the, the Soviet government, the communist government rather, the PDPA, uh, in line with USSR policy at that time, was extremely supportive of music. Musicians were treated very well. Um, and, and as long as they towed the party line in terms of what they actually sang about uh, then they were you know, in, in a much better position than they were to become uh, later on meanwhile across the border both in Pakistan and in Iran there were severe restrictions on music it was a little bit different in the two countries in Pakistan where let's face it there was something like three and a half million afghan refugees in pakistan in the mid 1980s the vast majority of those refugees were living in refugee camps that were largely paid for by united nations but they were administered by one or other of the seven mujahideen parties there was this seven parties that they all had you know different leaders and rather different approaches and the, the most hardline ones were associated with the Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. They were extremely against music, whereas uh, uh, another one, I can't, uh, Gailani's lot, uh, were, were much more um, approachable in that term. So in the refugee camps, music was entirely prohibited. Partly the justification was that within Islam, if there has been a death in the family or in, the, in your neighborhood, then you should abstain from music for 40 days. And within these refugee camps, there was a constant flow of people coming in who had lost loved ones and so on. So this provided the the religious faction, if you like, with a ready excuse that there should be no music in these camps. These camps are in a state of permanent mourning. That actually um, contrasts enormously with um, what has been going on in other refugee camps in other parts of the world, particularly in Africa, where music has really been used by uh, the camp authorities or those running them in order to you know, increase m- morale and give people something to do. In those camps, you couldn't even listen to music on the radio. You could have a radio, but you weren't meant to listen to music on it. This meant that professional musicians or those who had been professional musicians, if you were in a camp, you kept quiet about it. And uh, the musicians that I was dealing with, uh, you know, they didn't live in camps at all. They they, they lived in rather uh, impoverished circumstances on the on the edge of Peshawar, but they were free to to do their music. In Iran, it was a bit different because it wasn't that the the camp authorities were against music, but it, uh, after Ayatollah uh, Khomeini had come to power, there was a big clampdown on music anyway. So. Um, Afghan musicians in Iran were, were also restricted for that reason. Right. In terms of your, your question, which I haven't really answered, yes, of course, many of these musicians who went into exile, uh, you know, when things got better, they would then go back to Afghanistan and resume their normal life. So in my book that I mentioned, um, there's a long chapter about the state of music in Kabul during the communist era and what was going on in the camps. After that, uh, in 1992, the last of those communist governments fell, and then the um, you have the coalition era. That's when the seven political parties from from um, uh, Pakistan, the Afghan um, Mujahideen, took control of the country, but they couldn't agree about how to run it. And that is actually when the city of Kabul, Kabul was largely destroyed by infighting between. Members of these seven different groups. It is a very, very complicated story, but uh, any musicians who had been enjoying, those musicians who had been enjoying good good conditions uh, during the communist era, you know started to leave, partly because they could see that they were in a much more uh, intolerant um, musical, musically speaking environment, but also because the the city was being destroyed. And the, the Musician's Quarter, where many, many of these hereditary musicians had been living, uh, were, they were in the line of fire between two opposing camps and lots of rockets had fallen on on the Musician's Quarter. And, you know, I visited that Musician's Quarter in, in 2002 in the, the fourth film that goes with my book called A Carvel Music Diary. And, you know, I'm, I'm taken to tour the ruins of this musician's quarter, this was Ustad so-and-so's house, that was such-and-such's house, and then, you know, finally, in the film, we come to the house of my Rabab teacher, Ustad Muhammad Omar, completely ruined, and the person showing me, who had been also an, an Afghan student uh, of Ustad Muhammad Omar, says, you remember, you know, this was there was a tree here, and, um, you know, this is where... This is where the teaching room was. This is where you used to come for your Rhabab lessons. If you remember, you know, I I was like the servant of Ustah Muhammad, I would bring the tea when you came along here. You know, it was a very, very moving movement, moment for me there. You can see it. It's my moment of truth. In the film Amir, there's a moment of truth towards the end of the film where, you know, having seen Amir, you know, looking pretty happy and jolly and, so in various circumstances, we go to a Sufi shrine, at his suggestion, and there he kind of you know, reveals his inner feelings about you know, loneliness and depression and um, weeping. Yeah.
0: You've, how many trips have you made um, since 2001 to Afghanistan? And when, when is the last time you were there?
1: Yeah, I was there um, about, um, two years ago. Well, after after 2002, I, I wrote a report and I made this film, Kabul Music Diary, and I was in contact with the Aga Khan um, Music Initiative in Central Asia. They liked my report, you know, the things that I'd found and the suggestions, and they particularly liked the film. So, in 2003, I was asked to become a kind of part-time consultant and to go back to Kabul and to set up a tradition-bearers program, which they already had something like that in uh, Tajikistan and probably in Uzbekistan. So the point of this was to gather together a small number of, you know, top teachers, Ustads, and set them up so that they could they could continue their teaching. My work had shown that, you know, the music that needed support was not the new music that was coming into Afghanistan Particularly from uh, California and also from Germany, that the the new um, very loud keyboard style music, much influenced really by Western pop music in one way or another. The music that needed support was the in what we call, what I call anyway, um, Afghan classical music. This has a heavy debt to Indian music in itself, but it also has very important elements of Pashtun music and also. Uh, uh, Khorasanian music, really from the um, the Herat side of, of things. That was the music, and it's mainly the singing of very serious um, devotional poetry of a of a Sufi nature. You know, for that music, they're singing for all the, the great Persian poets, Baydil, uh, Hafez, Saadi, uh, and so on. That was the music that was under threat. So the four ustads that I appointed were three of them I, I knew from before. Uh, and I set them up in a, in a small room and with a limited number of instruments and, and left them to it. I knew that they were quite capable of teaching. I mean, being an Ustad in Afghanistan, as in India, means not just being a great player, but a, a, a good teacher as well. And they knew how to teach. I trusted them to do that. I didn't you know issue instructions about curriculum or anything like that. So that was 2003, uh, 2004, I was back there to, to see how it was getting on. But at that point, I realized it was too difficult, really, to organize, you know, the day-to-day running of this school from London. So I resigned my position, and I had done what I felt I could do. And then they uh, found a very, very suitable person called Mirway Siddiqui who took ran the school now for the next Ten years and really built it up into a proper school with its own building, um, more teachers, more students, and that has been a really big success. So you know, I, I like to 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 think that I at least helped start that um, very worthy project going.
0: Yeah, that that sounds terrific, and and I think just for my last question, I. Um, I think when most westerners think of Afghanistan they think of terrorism yeah. and heartache and war and devastation. Mm. Um as someone who has seen enormous changes um in Afghanistan over the past, you know, 30 40 years mm. are you are you optimistic for the future of the country given what you've seen and learned in the in the in the recent past?
1: Uh yes, well you might be surprised to to, to hear that I am optimistic. I think th- the country has changed absolutely uh, fundamentally in the last, um, well, since since um, 2001, uh, particularly in terms of education and so on. I should mention that, that having set up that school, I, w- I was then uh, again in, in Kabul in 2006, um, 2009, 2011, and then I was visiting, and this do- does relate to your, your question another music school that had been set up this is called the Afghanistan National Institute of Music set up by a very uh, extraordinarily gifted inspiring uh, figure Dr. Ahmad Sarmast he's the only Afghan I know of with a PhD in musicology from an Australian university and in 2010 he set up this and get it a co-educational vocational music school in Kabul co-educational, girls and boys actually being educated together. It's the only co-educational school that I know of, you know, for, for children above, uh, you know, in, in their teens and so on. So it has had a lot to do with that school. In 2011, I, I visited the school for two weeks and uh, taking my uh, video camera with me as usual. and did a lot of filming around the school, and when I came back, the people who, would you know, paid for my trip in the Institute of Education in London University said, "Come on, you know, you've, this footage is really interesting. Why don't we edit a film out of it?" So there was a film called uh, "Return of the Nightingales." It's a 30-minute um, film, actually in this observational cinema style. There's no there's no voiceover. There's no there's, there's no kind of explicit information about school. It's just like visiting the school, going from one room to another. Here we see people practicing. Uh, their lessons; in others, they're having uh, teaching sessions. Here, we've got the the orchestra rehearsing um, uh, Ravel's Bolero uh, and so on. And then, two years, um, two a bit years after that, my wife and I were mm. invited to the school because in the winter time they have their um, winter I can't remember um, uh, a special session for for a couple of months, and, th- and th- at that time. They get a lot of uh, foreign um, performers and teachers from abroad, so we were there for two weeks as teachers and performers teachers of Afghan music to afghan children
0: so so you're you 're optimistic for the future of this music that that you love and and that's so important to this country
1: well uh, uh, i mean that that school is really symbolic of you know the, the the new Afghanistan, if you like. I mean, that, that's obviously why this school ha- is very, very popular with the diplomatic corps, the Western diplomatic corps in Afghanistan, because, you know, there it is, a co-educational school, a music school, is representing and, and uh, Amaz Town Masters has, has got lots to say about um, music and as a human right, music and democracy. The school has its own kind of uh, council that, that, that the students participate in voting there it combines lots of things that are symbolic of how we would like Afghanistan to become so that's part of the answer to your question is why I'm optimistic but another reason is that I'm in touch here in the UK with many Afghan students in London University in particular and uh, you know I've, I've quite often have had meetings with them screenings of films or seminars or whatever, and I'm very, very impressed by these people, young men, young women. Their dedication to their studies, but also their dedication to go back to Afghanistan. Not necessarily to live, you know. Now they've got their um, their British citizenship and so on, so that they're free to move back and forth. But but very many of them are really dedicated to thought of helping things improve back home. So that's another. Aspect of the um, of my hope, and another further thing I should mention is the enormous growth of uh, of radio, television, mobile telephones, all that kind of you know the the internet world that we take for granted, it's there also. And and you know when I went to Afghanistan in 1965, I mean you really felt you were off the map. I can imagine. But now you're not off the map anymore. And and. You see, um, and, uh, until, until recently, the, the media was completely c- controlled by the government. The, 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 the only broadcaster was Afghan, Afghan radio and television. That was a, a state organization. Now you've got this absolute proliferation of small independent FM stations. Some of them, you know, we might not approve of what they're broadcasting at all, but they are free to broadcast. And uh, print media is also very unrestricted, so you've got this enormous um, uh, tidal wave of, you know, the ability to express your opinion, which you didn't really have uh, in the past, except in in very kind of guarded uh, kind of poetry, where if you understood what the poet was saying, you realised that what he was saying was a bit different from what he meant. So, I, d- despite all the bombings and all the rest of it. Um, i remain I remain optimistic
0: well that's that 's encouraging then as uh, as someone who loves the arts and uh, and is very deeply interested in afghanistan that's it 's very encouraging to hear you say that so Professor John Bailey, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it
1: well thank you very much for you know, calling me up and having this wonderful conversation Zachary. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Professor Bailey, and if you'd like to learn more about his work and get links to everything we discussed in today's episode, please go to travelsandmusiccom slash Afghanistan. And while you're there, um, feel free to drop a comment or send me an email and let me know what, what, what you think about the show so far. I, I can really only build something great with your help, and I'd like to know what uh, what you like about the show and what you don't, so... My email inbox is always open to you. You can reach me at Zachary at travelsandmusic.com. And as always, the best way you can show your support for the show is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and review. So if you haven't already done that, it would mean a lot to me if you could. Until next time, my name is Zachary Stockhill. Thank you once again for joining me. And remember that life is short, so be sure to enjoy it. And I'll talk to you again very soon.